morning, Covenant College. You look great. Did you do something with your hair? Was it? No. Really look good. Today we are uh, beginning a new faculty chapel series. Uh, we'll be spending the coming year during occasional chapels listening to faculty members reflect on the statement, why I am still a Christian. Now that might seem like a strange formulation. Notice that it's very different from the more straightforward, why I am a Christian, in which we might expect to hear a personal testimony explaining how the theological theological claims about Jesus became activated in the speaker's life. Why I am still a Christian might do some of that as well, but the assertion puts off a different vibe, doesn't it? It may raise some different questions. Some might complain right off the bat that the statement we've chosen doesn't sound very reformed. Don't I believe in irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints, you might ask? Well, yes, yes I do. These are great theological affirmations that I embrace, but whose mystery I cannot claim to resolve or explain. The sad reality is that not everyone who claims the life-changing power of Christ holds fast to those claims throughout their lives. As I'm sure you know, some walk away. Some make the painful decision to turn turn from their professions of faith and set off on a very different path. I am sure that some of you here today are struggling with your faith, feeling conflicted on whether you're going to stay tethered to the Christian life. You may be wrestling with doubts, or perhaps you are struggling with conflicted feelings about the current state of the church and its teachings, or maybe you're just angry, angry at church leaders, angry at family members, angry at some of us, or angry at God himself. Over the years, I've watched students and alumni engage in this struggle. I've walked alongside many of them. I know that it is painful. And by the way, struggling in this way is no cause for shame. I've seen many return to the Lord with deeper and richer and more abiding personal faiths. Some, however, choose to walk away more decisively. Struggling with faith is not a new challenge, but there are indications within the culture of Christianity that the tendency I'm describing here is growing. Over the past few years, a number of prominent Christian leaders and artists have made a show of announcing that they are no longer Christians. Stories of toxic churches and abusive church leaders continue to bubble up, leading some to lose confidence in the message of Jesus and in those who have been entrusted to care for his flock. Some have concluded that the church's historic teaching on sexuality and gender is backwards and regressive and made the decision that they do not wish to be associated with communities who hold to such views. Others decide that they simply prefer to live lives wholly devoted to their own versions of happiness, free from any framework of accountability or obligation. They believe they're better off 
without Jesus. It's become increasingly common and more culturally accepted to deconvert, to join the ranks of former Christians. Proud testimonies of deconversion, sometimes preceded by deconstruction, have become familiar post-Christian social media rituals. At a time when it's become commonplace to see Christians casting off their foundational beliefs and communities of faith, it felt important to hear from your professors. As I'm sure you know, in order to become a faculty member at Covenant, in addition to being qualified in our fields, we all profess personal faith in Jesus Christ. In the ordinary course of life at Covenant, this fact should be easy to take for granted, and we hope you do. My colleagues are not only among the smartest people that I've ever known, they are also among the most devoted to Christ and his church. They also care for and deeply love you. But we're also just people. Ordinary, broken people with struggles in our family lives, in our churches, in our personal health and well-being, and in our daily work here at the college. We have anxieties. We have doubts. What is it about the Christian faith that we continue to find true, formative, and compelling? Why in the face of so many current challenges do we remain anchored to our hope in Jesus? How do we experience faith differently today than we did when we were your age? We hope and pray that our reflections this year will encourage you as you think about your own walks with Christ and your own daily struggles. I want to begin this morning with what I see as the challenge of our age. Then I want to conclude with some of my own reflections on why I am still a Christian. When Covenant College was founded back in 1955, the Christian faith enjoyed near universal assent throughout the Western world, especially here in the U.S. I'm not saying that everyone was a Christian. That is clearly not the case. But Christianity was recognized as one of the basic foundations of society. Among the key building blocks of Western law, politics, and cultural life. It was around this time that President Eisenhower signed bills placing the words in God we trust on our currency and under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. It was Christianity that Americans leaned on to shore up our unity amid the global threat of Soviet communism. The cultural heritage of Christianity was among the undisputed pillars of Western society. And pretty much everyone knew it. It should be clear to you that we no longer live in that world. Nearly 70 years later, Christianity's significant cultural status is something we can't take for granted. It simply doesn't command the same level of respect that it once did. The tenets of Christian faith were once uniformly recognized as a chief source of stability and social cohesion. While some still see it that way, it is just as likely today for people to associate Christianity with conflict bigotry, even hate. 
Like it or not, Christianity in the West has been undergoing a massive process of reputational decline for the past 50 years or more. Put another way, it is harder to be a Christian in 2022 than it was for your parents and your grandparents when they were your age. Harder in the sense that we face more social friction as Christians living in the modern world. Some of this friction comes simply from navigating a more diverse, pluralistic, and secular society. We don't assume that our neighbors or our friends share our faith or our outlook on life. The proportion of the culture that considers itself Christian is simply smaller than it used to be, and it continues to shrink. But aside from that, we Christians have some pretty ugly skeletons in our closets. We've been forced to confront them. Some of the friction we faced comes from the growing awareness that people have done a lot of crappy things throughout history in the name of Christ. Christians were defenders of chattel slavery, among the architects of global colonization, among the apologists for racial segregation, and among the protectors of sexual abusers, especially in the church. Even if we were to use every ounce of our energy to demonstrate the ways in which these actions run counter to the very essence of Christ's gospel message of world-changing love, and we should. We cannot change the fact that there are Christians past and present who have done rotten things and have done them in Jesus' name. And the rotten things they've done have been costly to the reputation of Christianity the world over. And if I'm really super honest, the rotten things I have done have been costly to the reputation of Christianity among people I know. So what difference does it make that Christianity no longer sits at the center of power and influence within our culture? Does it make Christianity somehow less true? I don't think so. But it might just render Christianity permanently uncool. If that is the case, how are you going to handle it? Is that something you've thought about? This is what I mean when I say it's harder to be a Christian today. Wearing the label of Christian means, uh, carries with it greater social costs than it did for earlier generations. And those costs may continue to rise. My question is, are you ready for that? Are you preparing yourselves now to live and raise your children in a world where the costs of bearing Jesus' name are high and the social benefits are vanishingly small. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that Christians in America are under attack for our faith. We are not. I'm hesitant to indulge what Alan Noble calls the evangelical persecution complex, our tendency to inflate the ways we talk about cultural opposition mistaking what I have described as social friction for genuine suffering for the gospel, which is actually happening around the world. We're not there yet, but the day might come. My question is, are you ready?
Now, this isn't the first time that Christians have experienced diminished cultural power, right? Believers in the first century, in fact, had none. They were a marginal, maltreated minority, even within their own religious community in Judea, and would even hold less cultural influence as they moved out into the Roman Empire. First century Christians were decidedly weak, and the apostles were pretty open about it. Paul states, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lasters less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is not the testimony of a dude who holds a lot of social power. Right? The, the New Testament promises nothing of the sort. Indeed, Paul and nearly all the disciples would die violently at the hands of the state. Christians were a weak and marginal lot, and from a worldly point of view, they lived on the edge of annihilation. After nearly 300 years of state-sponsored persecution, something changed. The Roman Emperor Constantine recognized Christianity as a legitimate part of the social order. For the first time in history, Christian institutions, ideas, values were imbued with social power. When the emperor became a Christian, the public fortunes of Christianity grew dramatically. Our status in the eyes of the world rose. We became the cool kids. And the long-term consequences of this marriage between Christianity and social and cultural and political power have been both very positive and very negative. On the positive side, the Constantinian transformation of Christianity put an end to persecution, made Christians respectable citizens. Christian values began to weave themselves into the culture, making life in the empire more stable compassionate, just, and free. Moreover, the rise to power of a Christ-friendly state would aid the spread of the gospel around the world. Today, when we urge one another to engage the culture or to become salt and light in arenas of cultural influence, we're invoking aspects of that Constantinian heritage. In other words, Christians living in the West have long assumed easy access to cultural power thanks to this Constantinian frame. We got used to having it, and to be honest, we did a lot of cool things with it. But the Constantinian marriage has also had some negative consequences. When Christianity was wed to social power, the Christian faith was easily used to validate wicked activities. I've already listed some examples, and sadly, the list could go on. When the emperor becomes a Christian, every war, every conquest, every social experiment, regardless of its character, comes with a Christian seal of approval. Power corrupts with often tragic results for a Christian witness. There's another less examined negative consequence of this Constantinian merger 
When the emperor is a Christian, new motivations arise for identifying as a Christian ourselves. Being a Christian suddenly helps you climb the corporate ladder. It enables you to network among the powerful. It could make you rich and powerful. In a pre-Constantinian world, there was no social benefit for identifying as a Christian. Only social costs. No one would have called himself a Christian then unless he really believed it. What would be the point? The Constantinian marriage created a vehicle for power and reputation completely detached from real discipleship. Hypocrisy and social or cultural Christianity have been the legacy. So whether we think of the Constantinian system as good or bad, we need to recognize that it is currently collapsing. That's what we mean when we say we're living in a post-Christian world. As for Christians, used to living under that old system, we're having a bit of an identity crisis. We're struggling with status anxiety. We're not sure what to do about it. One response has been to continue pursuing status and influence, even if that means leaving Christianity behind. Some of us have decided that Christian convictions have become kind of a liability. We're a bit embarrassed to say that we hold some of the views associated with it, especially as it comes again to those views I mentioned on sexuality and gender identity, but there are others. We fear becoming banned from polite society. I will be honest, it is not something uh, that is any fun to think about. Our once mainstream views are now widely proclaimed to be hateful and bigoted. We feel pressured to sand off the parts of our belief and value system that others find objectionable. No one wants to be regarded as uncool or standing on the wrong side of history, and yet here we are. Some find it easier to simply kiss Christianity goodbye. Another very different response to our declining status amid the collapse of the Constantinian order is to fight back. To do battle with the woke enemies of Christ who have unseated us from our rightful place of power and influence. We justify our anger and our cruelty because we're convinced that we're right. We're simply defending the truth. This is the siren song of Christian nationalism and it beckons. It urges us to embark on a holy war whose aim is to regain our lost status and to restore the Constantinian order. Take back the culture for Jesus. Well, this may not look as much like a rejection of Christianity as the first option. I actually think it is. It mistakes the power we as Christians had under the Constantinian order with Christianity itself. And it makes an idol of that power in ways that bring shame on the gospel. What these two very different responses to our current predicament share is a common desire to preserve our status at any cost. One by abandoning the fundamental truths of Christianity so we can continue eating at the cool kids' table. The other by trying to take back the cool kids' table by force as our natural birthright, making a mockery of Christ's ethic of love as we do. Ultimately, both 
care only about status. And both are rooted in the pagan virtues of faithlessness. Happily for us, an alternate response to status anxiety is readily available to us in the pages of the New Testament. The models of Christian faithfulness we find there had no powers, uh, had no illusions of social power or social standing. As they toiled and suffered in worldly irrelevance, their only status came from knowing Jesus, who said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So in that confidence, the Apostle Paul declared, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If we look closely, we can see a path here that enables us to navigate the social frictions to come. In the gospel, Jesus offers us wisdom through foolishness, exaltation through humiliation, joy through suffering. The gospel promises that we will receive through giving, that we will gain through losing, and that we will obtain riches through poverty. The only path to self-fulfillment is through self-denial. And the only way to life is through death and dying. Jesus offers us a message in which we are called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. If you are looking for a life rich in meaning, grounded in love, and plugged into the Father of Lights, then I think this is the path you're looking for. So why am I still a Christian? I'm still a Christian because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. I'm still a Christian because the cross of Christ remains the only sight that makes sense of my dark heart. And my own desperate brokenness and my own radical need for reconciliation and renewal. I'm still a Christian because the false gods of this world and the idols I manufacture in my heart leave me anxious, hopeless, and desperately alone. While my restless heart has finally found true rest in the faithful arms of Jesus. I'm still still a Christian because I've seen with my own eyes the many ways in which suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Praise God. I'm still a Christian because I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. For those of you who are struggling today, who aren't sure why or if you're still a Christian, know that you are not alone. There is no reason for you to struggle as if you were. Our community here, imperfect as it is, is filled with loving, generous, spirited people willing to listen and eager to bear your burdens alongside you. Please, don't miss an opportunity to avail yourselves of a community like this. Also know that we, the faculty and the staff, we love you very much and we pray for you every day. Pray with me now. Oh God, our rock and our refuge, there are many things that we allow to erode our faith in you. We think we know better and find it easy to begin relying on ourselves to weather the storms of life. Forgive our lack of hope and the disbelief that drowns us. Allow us to hold on to you, our rock, and to build our lives on the foundation of your love. In the name of Jesus Christ, our shelter and our friend. Amen.